Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Our speaker this evening received a PhD in philosophy from the Catholic University of America in 1997. A third order lay Dominican, he is a professor of philosophy at Christendom College, where he has taught for, I believe, 26 years at this point. Dr. John Cuddeback writes and lectures on various topics, including virtue, fatherhood, friendship, and household, and his professional writings appear in various academic journals and books. His popular book, True Friendship, Where Virtue Becomes Happiness, was recently republished by Ignatius Press. His blogging at lifecraft.org, that's life-craft.org, we'll share a link to that uh, in the follow-up email uh, where you can follow him. He, uh, he offers weekly reflections and courses on the household, uh, and he's known there for applying ancient wisdom to life today. He's a frequent speaker here at the ICC, and of course, he taught our Philosophy 101 and 102 courses, which uh, if you are just meeting him tonight for the first time, I recommend you go find those in our library. He also teaches for our Magdala Apostolate for Religious Sisters. Please join me in welcoming back Dr. John Cuddeback. Let us pray. In the, name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we place ourselves in your presence. We ask you to bless our good intentions. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. Thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who didst instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that in the same spirit we might be truly wise and to ever rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. Holy angels, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All righty. Peter mentioned there is a handout. If you don't have access to that, don't panic. I will read out loud anything that I want to refer to. The main reason for the handout is I like to have something you can kind of take with you, put in the bank, as it were. Its cash value is literally beyond measuring. And also, if you are able to print it out, it would be nice. Uh, please go right ahead and do so, and you'd be able to look at it as we go through it together. So, a truly good life, insights from Plato's dialogues. Big picture. There's one main thing that Socrates spent his days pursuing single-mindedly, 
speaking about with all those who were willing to speak with him about it. And that is to be able to find out, to address the question, to come to some greater understanding of what is a truly good human life. Isn't that just such a fabulous question? And in a sense, what else is there? What is a truly good human life? As you get to know Socrates more and more, you, you, you appreciate the example that he sets for us and the things that he can teach us in how he goes about this and the things that he discovers. It, one thing to note in the phrase truly good human life is the adverb, truly. Socrates had confidence that there is a truth. There's a truth about human nature about what human nature is called to be. And it's discoverable. It's not necessarily easy to find, but it is discoverable. When we find the truth, we can live it. It's possible to start to discover it and not live it. So it's interesting how there's, there's, there's that challenge both of discerning what the truth is and then actually enacting it. Socrates was, was very interesting in how he thought about this. He, he, he struggled with this, and he passed on this wonderful issue to his student, Socrates passing on to Plato, Plato passing it on to, to Aristotle. Could you even really, really know what the good human life is and choose not to live it? That's a very interesting question, but not a fish that we have to fry. It was clear in Socrates' speaking he doesn't have any writings, but Plato has put it into writings for us. What is very clear there is that there's two kinds of truth or two aspects, we might say, of truth, because in a sense, truth is very unified. But there's two aspects of it, truth about how to live. And then there's a truth that's even higher than that. A truth is not so much about how to live, but the higher truths that we simply gaze upon. Aristotle will more clearly and systematically make this distinction. In Aristotle, this will be a distinction between practical truth and speculative truth. Practical truth being the truth about how to do things. Most important practical truth, how to live a good human life very deeply interwoven with, very closely connected to, but not the same thing as the highest truths that ultimately are not how-to truths, but they're truths that you simply come to see and continue to gaze upon. Ultimately, these are very woven together, and the pursuit of them very much goes hand in hand. Indeed, for our Socrates, the pursuit of wisdom was always ultimately at the same time a pursuit of practical truth and of speculative truth. One thing that comes out in the, in the masterpiece of the Republic is he functionally treats the wise man and the just man as the same man. But the term wise emphasizes one aspect, and the term just emphasizes another. The just is more of the moral side. It's the side of, are we voluntarily living the truth about human life? 
again, wisdom is very much concerned with that, particularly what we call practical wisdom. And there's going to be a, an, an even higher wisdom of the knowledge of the things that we just simply, ultimately, want to gaze upon. So here's our plan. This week, we're going to, first of all, look at Socrates' approach to finding truth, and then spend most of our time on his notion of education. Why? Well, I hope that will become clear as we do it. Fundamentally, his notion of education is how people are formed so as to see and live the truth. So if we really become educated, we will become able to see and live the truth and indeed then be in a position to be able to do that for others too. More on that forthcoming. So basically, again, this week, we're going to look at Socrates' approach to finding, discovering truth in general, and then get into more specifically what he calls education, what's translated with our term education, and look at different aspects of that, what we can learn from that, and apply that in our lives. And I'm going to end with some very concrete, practical suggestions. Next week, we're going to look more at specific virtues and go through his treatment of the four cardinal virtues. See that, that as the specific fulfillment of human nature, and then go on and talk a little bit about something he doesn't put a lot of time into, but clearly in his mind is most ultimate. And we'll look at a couple of texts where we see that. Look at contemplation, what he thinks the ultimate destiny of the just and wise man is. So that will be next week. So let's jump in. Approach to finding truth. Well, I love the opening quotation I give you on the sheet, number one, from the dialogue called Euthyphro. I prefer, context for saying it doesn't particularly matter. I prefer nothing unless it is true. Here is a man who loved truth. And, you know, it's, it's, it's worth asking ourselves again and again, how, how does he become that way? In a sense, that is kind of our question for the day as we look at what he calls education. How do you get to the point where you're like that? This is the kind of question to ask yourself again and again and again. Sometimes we just look at a great example like this and just, and just try to notice things about him. What a lover of truth. I prefer nothing unless, unless it is true. It, it, there's so much packed into this. He's not concerned about what people think about him. He's not concerned about how he appears. He's concerned about becoming wise, about discovering what is true. He's utterly convinced that this is at the heart of what it means to be human. And he's just trying to be faithful in acting that out. Just watching him do that already gives us a great hint of spend time with people that are wise, spend time with people like Socrates, and that will be the type of thing that will start to inspire us to become more like them and to have confidence that we can actually succeed. There's nothing that gives us confidence that we are able to have some success in our pursuit of truth than seeing someone who has actually done it. But that, that, that brings 
us to this fascinating aspect of how sometimes Socrates talks about how little progress he actually thinks he's made. That's going to come in number three. But second quotation, the love of inquiry must follow his beloved wherever it may lead him. There's something we can learn from the exact from the example of Socrates. It's pursue wisdom, pursue truth in a way that is worthy of the truth that we're pursuing. And one thing that becomes apparent as we think about Socrates, as we think with Socrates, is it doesn't happen of itself. This is one of the, one of the most fascinating aspects of this the great philosopher's insight into human nature. Such incredible potential for what we can do. But what does it take to actualize the potential? This this is the rich question. This is the question that is is kind of scary, but also extremely exciting, and why it's worth coming back to again and again. What does it take? to bring human persons to the fulfillment of what we're naturally made for, to grow in seeing the truth and living the truth. Well, the lover of inquiry must follow his beloved wherever it may lead him. I implied in that is that the, the way might be a bit circuitous. It might be a bit dark. It might often be dark. Are we willing? to pursue wisdom in a way that is fitting to the dignity of what we're pursuing, wherever it might lead us. More on that later. We'll look at the three, four, and five now bring out a very beautiful theme in the apology. The apology is, this, I'm giving you a little taste for a few different dialogues here. The, the apology is what presents the famous trial and sentencing of Socrates. He is on trial for the life that he has lived. One beautiful thing that comes out there is you can say in a sense, he's on trial for having been a philosopher. The term philosophy means love of wisdom. A philosopher is a lover of wisdom. So one of the things clearly that he's trying to convey in this great dialogue is what is wisdom and how do you pursue it? And, and, and here are some rather surprising things that he says early on. So I'm likely to be wiser than he to this small extent. I do not think I know what I do not know. Doesn't think he knows what he doesn't know. Let's go on in, in the fourth quotation. He was going to bring out something that was a fruit of his experience, his vast experience of conversation with people in all different walks of life and what he discovered to be a foundational obstacle to growing in wisdom. But men of Athens, the good craftsmen, pause, throughout this, we're going to keep coming back to the term craft or craftsman. A craft is a specific know-how. It's a kind of practical knowledge. A craft is always a specific know-how. And as we'll see in a moment, humans are always crafting in some way question is what and how. But here he refers to how he's gone around. And he talked to many good craftsmen, specific crafts. Men of Athens, the good craftsmen seem to have the same faults as the poets, who themselves are kind of craftsmen. Each of them, because of his success at his specific craft, 
thought himself very wise in other most important pursuits. And this error of theirs overshadowed the wisdom that they had. In, in short, because we have a knowledge in a particular area, we're very comfortable and very confident in that. So often, we come to have too high an estimation of the state of our knowledge of things. This is a great danger that Socrates would warn us of. We want to live in the truth. There's nothing wrong with recognizing a reasonable competence that we have and having a self-confidence in the knowledge that we have to do this, to do that, to understand this or understand that. One of the things that he's all about is raising deeper questions, more challenging, the most ultimate questions. And something that he points out, and it, it, it comes out in the story of the cave, and we're coming and spending a little bit of time talking about the story of the cave right now, is, is, is very, our various and sundry human weaknesses. And one of them is we don't like to experience ignorance. We find it very threatening. And so all, often very unconsciously, we aren't willing, it's a matter of will, we're not willing to recognize and face the real ignorance we have, especially about the most important things. Socrates would learn anything from him in that key dialogue, which is really his last great uh, you know, opportunity in the public way to, to defend what he had done kind of as the father of philosophy, is to recognize We've got to be willing to take an honest and true assessment of where we stand. In a Socrates' mind, if we're really seeing things as they are, that always means recognizing how little we know. If we aren't recognizing how little we know, then we're not seeing things well enough. So the beautiful kind of Socratic paradox here the more that you actually come to see reality, the more you see how little you know. Why? That itself is incredibly revelatory of the richness of reality, very revelatory of the richness of this whole notion of human nature as designed to see. There, in fact, is such richness that the more you see of it, the more you see how much more there is to see. This is not some little mental game or trick. This is the center of human life, as far as Socrates can say, to understand this and then to choose, because it's going to be a choice. It's going to be a choice to respond to our, our perception. When, when, when the window starts to open upon the great things that we can understand, unless in some sense should, in any case, be making great effort to understand, what will we do? Quote number five, if I were to claim that I am wiser than anyone in anything, it would be in this, that as I have no adequate knowledge of things in the underworld, another way of putting that in kind of Christian terms is adequate knowledge of things of the next and higher life. As I have no adequate knowledge of things in the underworld, so I do not think I have. This is known particularly as Christians. This is, this is a very challenging thing. I'm just going to throw this out. We're going to move on. 
there's always going to be a balance. We have such an incredible and, and astounding gift in divine revelation that has made certain fundamental things known to us. And you might say, to some extent, clear to us, at least in certain basic lines. And to have the faith is to see that. Is that somehow incompatible with what Socrates is saying? I suggest consideration. It's not incompatible at all. In fact, it's deeply compatible. Witness the words of St. Thomas Aquinas. After he had a kind of revelation, a mystical revelation towards the end of his life, he says the words, all that I have written is as straw. We have to reckon with, here is the mature judgment of a profoundly wise man. And the more one reads St. Thomas, the more one thinks about the import of those words he said. Like we start to think in a Socratic kind of fashion here about how at one and the same time we can with faith and confidence know that we know certain things. Then have a sense of, Lord, I see so little. Lord, I'm the blind man. Clearly, that must be why you kept sharing with us your interactions with blind men, so that we would identify ourselves with them and learn who we are. So we set forth with confidence, and you might reasonably ask, where did he naturally get the confidence that he would come to more knowledge here where he's, he's saying, is there a hyperbole? I have no adequate knowledge. He chooses his words, Kip, I have no adequate knowledge of things in the underworld. He didn't say he has no knowledge. He says he has no adequate knowledge. How did he have confidence that if he just keeps trying, he's going to get more? He's going to get a lot farther. Can't give you an absolute answer to that. Had he simply seen maybe a, a, a mentor, someone? do it, that gave him the confidence. Was it not even that? I mean, there's something about Socrates that is, that is, that is we could say, is kind of preternatural. Was it as a kind of reward, a gift to him for his astounding sincerity and honesty and courage and other virtues that, that, that in that some way God bestowed upon him uh, you know, a stronger natural light, even where it, it helped him see for the sake of all of us down through the ages. Let's talk a little bit about education then. What ultimately is your craft? What ultimately is your craft? Your know how. All humans will have a craft. What ultimately is your know how? In number six, this is, from a, this is from a dialogue called Protagoras. Protagoras is a sophist. What is the wisdom of the sophist? Not the name of the sophist comes from the same Greek word Sophia, which means wisdom. We're not going to be able to go into this much. And what is the manufacture? And that means craft. What, 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 what is the manufacture over which he presides? In context there, that's where Socrates is, is, is talking to his student and saying, look, if you're going to go and spend time with one of the sophists, if you're going to take him as a kind of master and as a teacher, what craft 
is he going to be teaching you? As regards anyone you ever take as a master, as a teacher, it's good to be very clear on what know-how are we expecting to learn from this person. In life, it is fitting to have various masters in the various aspects of our life. If I ask the question again, what ultimately is your craft? The quotation I'm going to give you, number seven here, is going to is it points towards what we're going to spend more time on next week talking about specific virtues. This is one of my top 10 favorite lines from the Republic among the hundreds of jaw droppers in there. Do you think he, and this was this is this is a man who at last has become somewhat wise and begun to see the higher things. And Socrates says this in the Republic quotation number seven. Do you think he will be a poor craftsman of moderation, justice, and the whole of popular virtue? Here he raises this beautiful notion of here's the craft that every human as human must learn the know-how of how to craft virtue in yourself and in others. Just think of the, the know-hows that we esteem, that we honor, that we recompense in today's society. Not all of them are bad. Some of them are, are not so good. Maybe some are outright bad. A number of them are banal, perhaps. Examples are not necessary at the moment. The various and sundry know-hows, some of them are well worthy of recompense and perhaps honor, right? Such as the medical craft, the soldier's craft, but the craft of bringing about the virtues in our own life and the life of others. That is the goal of education. Education itself is a kind of craft. Education itself is, is one of the most important crafts. There's no circularity here. There is a craft of how to form people to be able to craft virtue. I say it again. Education in his mind itself is a craft that must be studied. It's one of the central themes of the entire republic. Indeed, of all of his thinking, the craft of education. Because, going back to an earlier point again, human nature has vast potential. But by a design of nature, you know, Socrates isn't making this up. He's just looking at the reality. What brings the potential of human nature to the actuality of being a truly good man, of living a truly good human life. It, it, it's amazing what must transpire to make that happen. For Socrates, for Plato, the craft of education is the craft of what are the things that we can do to help others be formed in such a way that they become craftsmen of virtue. Isn't that something worth spending a lot of time on? All right, let's take a look then now um, at what he says specifically about education. I'm at quotation 
Number eight, education isn't what some people declare it to be, namely putting knowledge into souls that lack it, like putting sight into blind eyes. But the power to learn is present in everyone's soul, and the instrument with which each learns is like an eye. It cannot be turned around from darkness to light without turning the whole body. Socrates is the master of using good bodily images that we can picture and then go to the spiritual in order to understand. He's like somebody else that, in that way and being a master of using very concrete, visible things to help us understand the deeper point. So right now, he's just having you think of a body and the eyes and how what, what does it take for an eye to be able to turn around? This notion of turning around is central. Power to learn is present in everyone's soul. And the instrument with which it learns is like an eye. So now we're going to talk about the instrument of the soul with which it learns, which rather evidently we can call the power of reason or intellect. So fundamentally and ultimately, education is about forming this central power, the power of reason or intellect. Not that alone is going to involve the other things and be a very full person process, but that most of all is what we're trying to form. So that instrument of reason, right, so the power to learn is present in one soul, and the instrument with which it learns is like an eye, like the eye. Now he goes with that image. It cannot be turned around from darkness to light without turning the whole body. I was going to apply this image of a body turning around, how the whole body, you can't just turn your eyes around. You have to turn your body around if you're going to look at something behind you. This instrument, now reason, cannot be turned around from that which is coming into being. That's this way of referring to lower things without turning the whole soul until it is able to study that which is and the brightest thing that is, namely, the one we call the good. All right, a lot, lot, lot going on there. Just what I want you to do is, is, is start to get a little bit of sense of his, his general way of his characterizing education. So first of all, it's a turning around, which of course, if you just use a Latinate word for that, education is all about conversion. Conversion means turning around. So, People need to be converted. They need to be turned around. They need to be have their vision raised. Vision. We're not fundamentally talking about eyes here, though we use eyes to convey the point. The vision of the soul needs to be turned from lower things to higher things. In a sense, it's very simple. Forming human people turning them from lower things to higher things. Sounds very simple. The insights of the wise always sound simple. And there's always a ton of richness going on in that. We've, we've started to move forward, but again, it just raises more questions. How do you get a soul to turn from lower things to higher things? Let's just keep going with it here. So he says, then education is the craft. He's always concerned again about the craft. So education is a craft. It's going to be forming you to be able to do the most important kind of craft. Right? There's education in the most smaller sense of getting educated as a carpenter. 
so that you learn the craft of carpentry. There's a craft of actually, you could say, educating someone in it, right? Okay, but here now, education, this education, the rich, full human sense that we're interested in, that's the craft concerning with doing, concerned with doing this very thing, this turning around and with how the soul can most effect, easily and effectively be made to do it. Isn't the craft of putting sight into the soul. Education takes for granted that sight is there, but that it isn't turned the right way or looking where it ought to look. And it tries to redirect it appropriately. All right. I want to point to a couple that is a general characterization of education. Let's point to a couple of, of uh, specific aspects of it. And then I'm going to go on to make my concrete suggestions. In turning around the soul, to teach it, to form it so that it can see higher things. There is a distinction between a moral formation and then I'm going to say more of an intellectual formation. There's a formation, and to say it in Aristotelian terms, of your appetite or your desires. And that's what we call the moral formation. For, 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 for Plato, for Socrates, Plato, all, all, all the wise, you, education always has a profoundly moral element. It is never simply about understanding something, understanding that truth. There's always a profoundly moral side of it, changing our desires. Why? The main reason for that is because of the deep interconnectedness of having right desire and seeing the higher things. It so happens that in human experience, we see this. You can study certain things and come to understand certain lower things, even if you have bad appetite. But the reality is the higher things, especially those that ultimately we just want to gaze upon, they can't be seen except by someone of purified desires. This is why for Plato, it's always... Socrates, it's always a combination of moral formation, formation of the appetite and the desires, and a training of the mind. So I want, I want to say both of those are something that you and I, if we want to learn from Socrates here, about how to form the craft to grow in the ultimate craft we want to have, the craft of forming virtues in ourselves and others. We're going to have to bear that in mind. I, to give you a sense a little bit of that moral side, Take a look at quotation number nine. He's referring here to a man that is a very clever one, a smart one, and understands a lot of stuff, but he but he's an evil man. And thus, not you can never call someone who's evil ultimately wise. They can have a kind of wisdom, but it's never ultimately real wisdom. However, if a nature of this sort had been hammered at from childhood and freed from the bonds of kinship with becoming. That's his, that's, his, that's his way of saying kind of tied to lower things, which have been fastened to it by feasting, greed, and other such pleasures, and which, like leaden weights, pull its vision downwards. That's incredibly powerful. This, you could have taken this right out of the rule of St. Benedict. Bonds, you're tied to lower things. The vision of the soul is tied. This is, as it were, anti-conversion. This, 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 is, this is what is, is locking the soul in 
in giving attention to precisely what is not life-giving, what is not fulfilling to what it means to be human. This, that we're locked in by what? By feasting, obviously take that in a sense of a kind of overdone, indulgent kind of way, feasting, greed, and other such pleasures, and which like leaden weights, pull its vision downward. If being rid of these, it turns to look at true things, then I say that the same soul of the same person would see these most sharply, just as now it now does the things it is presently turned towards. Isn't this expression of, of, of all of us to some degree? Our, our, our vision is, is tied to things that it shouldn't be so tied to. I mean, ultimately, the, the wise viewpoint, as he's going to make clear in the story of the cave, which we'll refer to a little bit here, ultimately, the more you see the higher things, the more then from the true perspective, you're able to see the lower ones too. So this isn't somehow you got to leave the lower behind. It's in seeing the balance and getting the right order here. We must put the first things first. And to some extent, that means experience shows this. He's saying this from a natural viewpoint. This certainly goes with the with the with the wisdom of 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 the Christian wise of that you have to turn away, even if to some extent then you're going to turn back again. There needs to be a turning away to sever ties, the ties that are locking us in. That great that great term, like leaden weights, like leaden weights. So it just gives you a sense there of the importance of reforming our desires. I'll make a suggestion about that um, in just a couple moments. Studies. The other aspect there in, in book seven, which was, again, it comes up in, he talks about education in book two and book three, book, book seven especially here. Here, he's talking about the studying side. Just to give you a little window into this, this is one of the most ancient foundational texts for what were called the liberal arts in the Middle Ages, which not going to be able to go into it any in any any specificity, but you're going to get the ba the basic point here. Quotation ten: It's no easy task, indeed, it's very difficult to realize that in every soul there's an instrument. Again, that's your reason. It is purified and rekindled. Great terms. Your reason, purified, rekindled by such subjects when has been blinded and destroyed by other ways of life. An instrument that is more important to preserve than 10,000 eyes, since only with it can the truth be seen. In a sense, eyes never really see truth in the proper sense. It's your reason that sees truth. And there's certain subjects which experience has shown are especially suited to purify and kindle our intellect so that we become more capable of understanding higher things. Ladies and gentlemen, from a viewpoint of natural reason, without the gifts of supernatural grace and the kind of extra knowledge that can be infused and that can come from divine revelation and the teachings of the church, here is a very straightforward point, a point that isn't nullified, but one that is somewhat transformed by divine revelation, is how utterly important it was, and to some extent remains, although again, somewhat modified, of you have to train your minds by certain kinds of studies if we really want to see the higher things. Number 11, 
all all this business of the crafts we've mentioned, he used the term crafts about so many things in so many different ways. Those crafts right there, he's talking about the liberal studies, not ones he had just talked about. He had talked about studying geometry, he talked about studying astronomy. Right? All the all this business of the crafts we've mentioned has the power to awaken the best part of the soul and lead it upwards, the study of the best among the things that are. Right. So all I'm going to say there is the importance of studying certain kinds of studies, the importance of which is as refining, purifying, kindling our reason. A couple of things really quickly, and I'm a quotation here for you to mention, and then my, my practical suggestions. The need for a teacher. Magister in Latin means teachers, also often translated as master. Teacher master in the story of the cave which is a story fundamentally about education as he says when he first starts to tell it there are people in the cave and who are the people in the cave there are people who need to turn around they need to get to see something that they're not seeing their 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 worldview is way narrow they haven't seen the beauty that they've been designed to see and one fundamental aspect of that story i simply point to it's a climb up to get out of the cave to come to the brightness of the light and he makes clear no one ever is able to make it up except when led by the hand of another. He is absolutely convinced that by a natural order, the only way to wisdom is to follow someone there, to learn from someone who is already at least a lot closer this, it's it, it, so, it so simple, but how, how often in life do we miss that to grow in understanding the things that we most need to grow in the understanding of, we try to do it ourselves. There's appropriate efforts to make, but how much more fruitful is the effort of an apprentice when it is under the watchful eye of the master? Because very often, the master tells the apprentice to do certain things. The apprentice literally never would have figured out. I was going to give you a rather banal example from the original uh, Karate Kid movie, but we don't have time. So we can circle back to that. And I don't know if you remember the original Karate Kid with wax on and wax off. Well, it's a great image for sometimes you just need to do certain things. Because the master said, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. Well, no one, no one said that it was going to. All right. Docility. Docility. All right. My suggestions. First, we're going to get this done in two minutes to so get your questions ready. First, fast. Sounds Christian. I don't see the word fast in Plato, but he, when he talks about those that he's most concerned to educate, the guardians in the city, he does address his concern that they not become attached to dainties in their eating. They need to eat healthy food. Fast. I'm going to read you something from St. Thomas that is, is going to make you say, wow, how this fits with everything we've just said. Ready? St. Thomas, Summa. This is so Socrates. Fasting is practiced for a threefold purpose. One, in order to bridle the lusts of the flesh, 
Wherefore, the apostle says, in fasting, in chastity, since fasting is the guardian of chastity. Isn't that, isn't that a statement for the ages? Fasting is the guardian of chastity. Remember the point of leaden weights to pull the vision downwards? Fasting is the way to address those leaden weights. Secondly, St. Thomas says we have recourse to fasting in order that the mind may arise more freely the contemplation of heavenly things. Do we think about that? Fasting. First, he said, for chastity. Second, to free the mind for contemplation. I suggest this is perhaps the ultimate wax on, wax off. This is where you and I are saying, what? You're saying me I got to do that so I can start to contemplate things? How's that going to work? To some extent, I'm just going to say this. Sure, there's more to say about that, but I, 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 I'm not trying to be facetious, but St. Thomas probably knows what he's talking about. So this is where we do well to say, hmm, docility. The third is in order to satisfy for sins. That's a great one. That would be something that Plato would have a little bit more of a hard time understanding. So fast. And, and my second suggestion is study. Study like wisdom is the goal. Read the masters, listen to the masters. Those that are no longer with us from prior ages, those that are with, with us, cultivate docility. I say to my students, remember what this when you're studying. It's never just about the specific content that you're studying. Studying is always also about forming habits of the mind. We're training our mind how to see. It's never just, can I understand this? Can I understand this? Particularly if it's a good kind of studying, studying the right kinds of things under the direction of those who are helping us. It is forming our mind, even if we don't succeed in understanding the thing we're trying to understand right now. And that's really encouraging, isn't it? Fast study, music and stories. I'm going to, we've, I talked about this in, 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 uh, in another ICC lecture, in other contexts. Socrates is the master of the importance of music and good stories. Quotations 14 and 15, which I'm not going to take the time to read out loud right now, are pointing to how music is a natural gift to us to help transform our passions. It's not a magic trick doesn't work simply by itself. Well, how about if I just, you know, play good music and otherwise I'll just kind of do whatever I want. Maybe I'll skip the fasting part because it's easier just to press play. Music is a beautiful part of the program. And good stories. This is not just for the young. This is for all of us. The stories that are feeding our imagination. Talk about turning to higher things. What turns our heart to higher things? Think about that one, listen to good music. It's not just, and do I like this? Do I, do I feel good? When you listen to great music, try to experience opening our soul to taste something higher, to begin to get a taste for it in and through that music. Likewise, through good stories, characters that inspire us to raise our minds to higher things. I conclude by just simply saying, let's not despise the little things. The things we've talked about here from Socrates are available to the light of natural reason. 
There are other means that are available to us, supernatural means. Obviously, they're going to be absolutely central for our living a good human life. But we never despise the little things for all these things are interconnected. And there's so much we can learn from good Socrates. Thank you for your attention. Dr. Kunabek, thank you so much for uh, for a masterful tour through Plato. Oh, when you, you sent me this, when you sent me this handout, I looked at these quotations and I thought, well, number one, these are all zingers. But uh, but of course, it, they were just you know numbered one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and you wove them together so seamlessly. Well, well, uh, so you. it was a lot of fun. It was a delight. But we look forward to uh, to, to next week's part two of this as you continue this with us, Doctor. I wanted to share. Uh, a quote from St. Clement of Alexandria that I came hmm. across recently. I, I, Please, I sure. had to hold on to it for tonight because only at the ICC uh, do you get you know a lecture on Plato and Socrates uh, woven into our curriculum. Um, and it's great that you are here. You, of course, understand the value of, of, of studying philosophy. You're with us tonight, but maybe you uh, have a friend who is a little bit uh, on the fence. Um, so here's something that you can you can hit him with. St. Clement writes, well, more background. Of course, this is all worth studying for its own sake. Of course, it's the truth. We've gotten exposed to uh, to these great insights from, from Plato and from his mentor Socrates that were seizing upon the really real, tr- the truth that is, uh, that is out there for us to discover. And that's worth pursuing, of course. So I don't want to undermine that by uh, reading this in, in the light that it may come across as, which is to instrumentalize philosophy. But that aside, this is maybe an apologetic for philosophy from St. Clement. He writes, some people who think themselves naturally gifted don't want to touch either philosophy or logic. They don't even want to learn natural science. They demand bare faith alone, as if they wanted to harvest grapes right away without putting any work into the vine. We must prune, dig, trellis, and do all the other work. I think you'll agree. The pruning knife, the pickaxe, and the farmer's tools are necessary for growing grapevines so that they will produce edible fruit. And as in farming, so in medicine, the one who has learned something is the one who has practiced the various lessons so that he can cultivate or heal. And here, too, I say you're truly educated if you bring everything to bear on the truth taking what's useful from geometry, music, grammar, and philosophy itself, you guard the faith from assault. Uh, Let's jump into Q&A then. Here's one. What do you do if you think, uh, you know, if you know somebody pretending to be wise, uh, what do you do if you think that they're leading other Catholics astray? Somebody who talks with authority, but their own agenda comes out, uh, but people are hooked as they think this person is wise. I still struggle with how to handle this. I, I, I try to direct people to ICC courses. Good move, but this this person asks, "What else? What else should we do to help get people mm-hmm. on the right path here?" Obviously, it's going to somewhat depend upon the details. But just a thought here: um, sometimes there will be very when you divide that quickly into two. What do you do vis-a-vis that person? What do you do vis-a-vis others being led astray? Might not be anything we can do vis-a-vis the person. Um, unless we have a personal relationship or whatever. Um, you know, I, I I struggle with this sometimes where I'm thinking, gosh, I really think this person over here is saying something that's kind of leading some people astray. Um, there might be some in, in the appropriate time and circumstances 
to actually speak out in in a corrective kind of way. I think that's going to be that's going to be more rare, and that's going to be certain people that are in the position to do that. But you know, short of that, okay, what are we going to do for these other people? If you know this person has has some type of you know pulpit, as it were, um, you know, I I, th- I think at times that, that's the type of thing we can kind of fret about, and we we might not be able to do anything. Obviously, we pray, and and not underestimate. That's not that's not a cop out answer. We're gonna Lord, it, it seems, but why what you've given me to see, I can see that this is misleading people. So please. Lord, bless this situation. Help us, you know, if there's some way this person could be corrected, this person could be changed, or people could be protected from it. Can we reach out to people then and and try to redirect them to something else? I mean, again, something exactly like referring them to ICC courses, I think, you know, and, and other such good content is exactly, um, you know, what is in hand. There's always going to be false teachers, and there's not, and, and there's, and there's, you know, there's no silver bullet to remove them. Or to remove the poison of what they're saying, and the Lord knows that, and we and again we pray and we take what reasonable steps we can. I think it's sometimes it's surprising how little we can do, other than with some that we can particularly then try to speak into, try to inoculate them, and try to inform them. I wish I had something more to say there, other than be at peace, you know, to develop the craft of crafting virtue in your life and try to help others, and that's going to spread. And, we, and, and to some extent, we might often have to just leave the rest to the Lord. Thank you. Susan here on screen. Go ahead. Dr. Kodabek, I just wanted to say that um, I've taken both of your philosophy classes, and it's one of those things that was very scary for me, but I learned so much. And the story of the cave, I didn't fully understand. It took a while for me to process. But I want to make this comment and listen to you today. I think uh, I understand better how we need someone to be wiser than us to lead us through. And that's what I'm going through with the study of the Odyssey right now. Mm. I've read the Odyssey before. I did not understand it. But this course that we're taking through ICC has been absolutely mind-opening. It's expanding me to a way I've never experienced before. So the idea of having a, a master, if you will, lead you through some of the processes of learning that we don't understand to the higher things is totally, you're totally on, on, on tap with that. Thank you very much for that. Well, thank you. Thank you, Susan. Thank you very much for sharing that. And uh, it, and, and yeah, well, it, it, it's, it's the wisdom of the ancients, uh, you know, ever old, ever new. So I, I say, thank you. This person writes in asking if uh, if you could give any practical advice for forming virtues in our own children. Uh, this person writes specifically, mine seem to have the knowledge of right and wrong, but many like many kids, applying what they know to what they do is a struggle sometimes. Any advice uh, in this particular? Yeah. Well, well, um, sure. Um, it's always going to be a matter of love. And what does one do to engender love in people? You can't make somebody, you can't make somebody love. A a, a principle that is always helpful here, it's not the solve all, but I do think it's at the absolute center. Um, Be asking ourselves how we um, help them fall in love with what they should fall in love with. And different ones will respond in different ways. But that's, I mean, the, the the simple tools such as beautiful music, beautiful stories, 
the first reading, uh, you know, in 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 the new uh, Latin Roman rite this past Sunday for the thirty second Sunday ordinary time was a reading from Maccabees about the um, about the sons and their and their um, courageous death. I mean. That I, I, we went back home and read that out loud as a family. It was it, it was just so inspiring. You never know when just hearing a, a story like that. You know, you know that it, the great thing to do on a Sunday is it, it is it, it, it it's moving. It's such a it's such a it's such a grabbing story. You never know when when maybe it won't touch them, or when one of the children right there will say, "I want to be like one of the Maccabees." It can be that 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 turning, turning moment. No, this this is different. This is completely different. He was ready to stick out his tongue, saying, "Take my tongue. The Lord gave it, and He'll give it back to me. But I certainly am not going to violate what the Lord has commanded me to do." I mean, just this this these kind of things they stir us. We're looking for ways to stir their hearts. That, I mean, that's really what's forming them to form what they love. And 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 another quick thing I'll just say is, you know, relationship, relationship, relationship. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you are giving of yourself to them. Enter into their lives and be with them and and listening to them. And and, and I mean, that their relationship with you is going to be at the heart of their loving their heavenly father. Not that it's absolutely necessary and absolutely irreplaceable, but that's one of the biggest things you can do. And we just keep for looking for more ways to do that. And that's just a quick thought there. Margaret here on screen. Go ahead. Yes, uh, I enjoyed your presentation. My, you. my days at college. I like to uh, bring up uh, the relationship of the master and the student. And Newton said, I see so far because I stand on the shoulder of giants, which kind of explained how we passed our knowledge. Yeah, yeah. That's great. So it's another great image. I I I, I in, in in indeed. Indeed. And it, it, it takes a certain wisdom to see that. It takes a certain humility to see that. Thank you, Margaret. Dr. Paul asks, is it fair to say wisdom's goal is to know the plan of God? Um, I'm going to put it, it, it to you this way. that I, I distinguish between the practical and the, and the speculative. The center of practical wisdom, which then is, is enacted in, well, it, in, in, in the next week when we talk about it, we will call it simply wisdom, as it's called in the Republic. In the in the Christian tradition, it's normally referred to then the Latin nature of prudence, prudentia. Um, that uh, I mean, I, as I was saying, I was what, what, I just lost my train of thought. What was the question again? Is is it, could we call wisdom uh, knowing the plan of God? So prudentia, at the heart of practical wisdom or prudence, is having an insight into what the plan of God is, the plan of God for how we're supposed to live. But I mean, the ultimate, ultimate wisdom, I'd say, is not so much simply knowing the plan of God. Normally, it, it, this turns on your question, turns on what you mean by plan. And I think the way we normally use the term plan is as the the kind of uh, the structure of the principles of how we're supposed to live. And so practical wisdom, yes, absolutely, is at root knowing the plan of God. And then how to enact that, but the but the highest wisdom, the speculative wisdom, 
is 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 looking upon our heavenly Father, and to some extent, as Saint Paul says, ultimately, to see Him as He is. So this this is that you know you wouldn't so much say, well, when I'm seeing God as He is, I'm seeing the plan. Well, I mean, sure, you could say it, it, the plan is in God as He is, but I, am I am I? Well, I hope that's right. But this isn't law. It was written in. I, I think that that gets it. Practical wisdom is knowing, and then of course executing the plan. Speculative wisdom is, in a sense, even higher than the plan. It's like knowing the person. Yeah, thank you. That that's a beautiful distinction. Georgie asks, uh, amidst this re- richness and depth, could you give maybe some more examples of those little things that we're not to despise? Yes. Um, thank you for that question. I, I, my mind really goes where I like to uh, go to when I think of education um, and how parents are the primary educators. And there I'm using educator, not in, not in the academic sense. There's an academic element that's just a, that's just a band of it right? in, in the in the in the formation in this broad formation sense. It's, it's going to be all those little things in the home. The time where we sat down around the fire. This, this is this is a this is a little thing, but it's not little because it's so big, especially for the young. The things that form their tastes, the things that that are forming their taste for higher things. When when in 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 the family, there's always that opportunity for that deeper personal connection and richness that actually frees you from the lower the banal, the sensuous, right? a, a well-done dinner with the family in itself is teaching them to transcend just their bodily tastes. This is about so much more than just the food tasting good. So to, to do dinner in such a way that we're, that we're tuned in, that we're present to one another, that we're listening to one another, this is teaching them the order. This is converting this is turning them from the lower to the higher. All the little things of daily life in the home that are training the heart, that are giving them the taste of the richer kind of things and teaching them a kind of hierarchy. That hierarchy is right there in those very, very simple things. I, 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 I love to quote Pope Benedict, who said when he was talking about his family life when he was young, who said, when I think of going to heaven, I think of it in terms of going back and living the kind of life I lived with my family. This means he tasted something that gave direction to his life, that taught him about the highest of things by very little things that it would be easy to miss. That's beautiful. Thank you. I, I I would also, if you wouldn't mind my giving a little plug for Lifecraft. I mean, that is a place where yeah. you're actively sharing quite often the little things, right? That get, that that show us the bigger things. So Thank you, Peter. Uh, we'll we'll Thank we'll put a link to that in our follow up email you. as well. But uh, yeah, Doctor Doctor Kudabek shares a lot of these. If uh, if you want to follow him there, we will. Let's end with one more question here from uh, Monty on screen. Go ahead. You encourage us to seek out inspirational story and story as in general. Um, Plato, when he wrote these dialogues, does something like present a story by presenting Socrates as a character, always 
in what is a play. You know, mm-hmm. it really seems like almost you could produce it on Broadway. I don't know of any other ancient philosopher that did that. So I'm wondering if you do and why you think Plato took that approach. Um, well, um, interesting. It's a rather painful topic because um, we know that Aristotle wrote dialogues also and they've been lost. So I, I think that's a very significant um, that there, there, there is there is something so central to to stories, to narrative. The works that we have of Aristotle, there's different there's disagreement among the scholars of whether it was his notes for teaching, whether it's a sketch for a kind of textbook. But apparently, he wrote dialogues also, and um, you know, it's funny. I was there, there's some people out there argue that we don't need to read uh, Plato because Aristotle surpasses him. So just just read Aristotle. I, I deeply disagree with that. Um, I do agree that Aristotle has surpassed Plato. Um, but nonetheless, there's something so utterly unique about the way um, the person of Socrates is presented on a journey and the kind of conversations that you have. And you say that being a kind of story. Um, is is able to speak to us in a unique kind of way. It makes me think also of the Confessions of St. Augustine, another one of the most important books of Western civilization. It, it, it's a narrative story. And and, 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 as, and the wise have said about it, it's, it's so much appeals to us because our life is a story. The human life is always very much one of a personal story. It, it starts somewhere, it, it's circuitous, but it's going somewhere. And, and it's especially in view of where it's going, it, it, there's a meaning that's cast back over the whole thing. Right? And this can be conveyed very much in that kind of, of in that kind of writing. So, um, I mean, there, I mean, otherwise, I don't know any other philosophers of the ancient world right off the bat. And I might be forgetting something very obvious um, where in any case of the dialogues we have, we do know that Aristotle Aristotle wrote them. So um, good, good stories. Lord of the Rings, put in the plug for the Lord of the Rings. Boy, there's a good story. Fires the imagination, helps, helps boys want to be men, help young girls want to be women. But uh, in, quick follow up there, Monty, or how are we doing? Well, can I add to your mix, doctor? Because you exposed him to me, Xenophon writing similar dialogues well it's xenophon is the is the other one that the, um, presents us with socrates of course i mean so we have we have the platonic socrates in the platonic dialogues thank you peter and xenophon uh like plato writes about socrates the great teacher those are lesser known but fabulous my favorite is called the estate manager Though it's 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 a tricky one, and and it's it's a classic. You got to be careful as to what's going on there or not. I'll quote you from uh, from your philosophy course with us. You just have to watch your pockets around this guy, Socrates. <laughs> you do, you do <laughs> have clear. to watch it. You do, you do. Well, thank you, Doctor. This was uh, this was excellent tonight, and uh, and it is 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 it doesn't have to end. You'll be back with us next week, so we look forward to that. Doctor, could you close us in prayer this evening? Absolutely. And Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We raise our voice in praise and thanksgiving. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, 
as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Great to be with you all, and uh, look forward to next week. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.